Hi, this is Roberta Fallon, and I'm here at the galleries at Moore College's radio station um, with Eileen Neff. Good morning, Eileen. Hi, Roberta. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Good. Well. So, Eileen is an artist, an educator, and a writer, and she, I want to talk about all those different hats in her um, multi-talented career that she's had and is having still in Philadelphia. So um, as an artist, you've, you are a Pew Fellow, and you've had various NEA grants and Pennsylvania Council on the Arts Fellowships, and the creme de la creme, the 2016 Guggenheim Fellowship. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's, that's really a big one. So talk about the Guggenheim a little bit, because I think there's a lot of mystique to it, and people don't really know what it is. Does it come with a purse? Is there a purse? Is it a travel grant, like the Fulbright, or just what is it? Uh, well, <clears throat> what I understand it is, um, it, it requires uh, a statement of plan. So they do ask for um, you to identify how you will um, use the grant. So it's a grant of money, um, and um, they actually ask you after you've been granted officially how much money you would like, which is very curious. And then they remind you that they have all these other people to also grant and ask you to be modest in your estimation. So I took that to heart <clears throat> and asked for what was slightly less than the optimal, optimal amount they had identified. And then they went ahead and gave me more. <laughs> so just to tell you, it's like this a, is like a game. <laughs> it, it, the whole thing is a bit of a game, but a wonderful game, obviously. And I, I did well with this game. And basically, uh, the application, <clears throat> excuse me, aside from the, um, I think twenty images that you may give up to. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing my Hillary Clinton here. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. We're hoping I don't have uh, pneumonia. Um, is um, it, it? It's made up of uh, a narrative bio and a rather extensive one, and then the statement of plans. Um, and those are the two texts which I worked on all last fall, uh, in anticipation of this. When I when it occurred to me, and I don't know why it occurred to me last fall that maybe I should apply for a Guggenheim. I think I had just uh, an innate feeling that the timing was right with how certain things had added up. And it is a grant that um, is gifted to artists who've already been said yes to. It's not an out-of-school grant. It's uh, they mm -hmm. like you to come already. With a robust uh, career? Well, yeah, already sanctioned or, or vetted or however you want to say it. And and, I, and also because the application was in 2015 and you're able to go back five years, I was able to include my last exhibition at Locks, And that was important to me because it was very installation driven. And I applied in fine arts, not photography, because they asked their photography applicants to actually submit physical photographs to be delivered to their building, which made no sense for my work at all. 
So I kind of ignored that, actually. I, I find it really, sorry to interrupt, but it's really an arbitrary distinction to separate photography well, from had, fine arts. It's an old-fashioned um. distinction, and they haven't caught up, and it's very... Um, it's such a throwback to bring the, the objects to, to, to the place. And only photography is asked to do that, which, I mean, there is a way that I can understand it in terms of everything becomes digital information, and so photography becomes another digital image, and I could see wanting to see the difference. However, if photography means so many different things today that except if you're a pure photographer, which I'm not, it doesn't apply. So I applied in fine arts. I emphasized installation as the focus of my work, which is very much a focus in my work. And the crazy thing is, Roberta, that they gave it to me in photography. <laughs> so, so this was a game and a half, which was fine. They could have given it to me in French. I mean, it, 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 all, it all was fine. Um, but that's that was the evolution of it, and um, it was you know it was, a, it was it was a great task to write um, to come up with a proposal because I usually um, I don't think in terms of oh there's this project ahead and I'll find words for it first and then see if I can do it. That's not how things have evolved. Mm -hmm. So it was a bit of a fiction. Uh, opportunity, but but one based on things I care about, so that was challenging. And then even the narrow biography had its own challenges. I mean, just to tell a story of where I've been and where I am and how it all adds up, and to make it interesting reading. But you are a writer, so why don't you read us some of your statement of plans? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try not to do too much of this. this I mean, this is how it, it I, I think it, it has some heart of the matter um, that we could discuss, and it begins in a more general way, and then it gets specific, and I hope not too specific. So I called the project The Idea of Mountains, and this is how I began. Um, as someone who celebrates attending to the moment at hand and who values the sense of presence that their work in turn hopes to engender in the viewer, I have come to recognize the value of travel. For me, the very fact of being somewhere else can heighten the possibility of these conditions and be instrumental in provoking the quality of awareness and the subsequent observations that are ultimately transfigured in my work. For the last several years, I have off and on researched a trip to the Shenandoah Valley in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a place where my family and I had briefly traveled when I was a young girl and a place that's remained stored in my memory as one that I would return to someday. Looking back over the last 35 years of making art, I'm struck by the presence of mountains as a subtext through much of my thinking, if not much of my work. Not something I sought out, but something I have been touched by, have experienced and engaged one way or another without directly seeking as a subject to explore. Now I feel ready to bring some intention to this idea of mountains, to be more in pursuit of what I might understand through an extended encounter and deeper connection to this persisting, mostly abstract notion of mine. It's not that I grew up near them, having been born into the life of the city and only shifting to a suburban setting at the age of 10, 
They're thinking that it was the country we had moved to, what with the field of cows behind the newly built rows of home we were a part of, a situation that didn't last very long as the suburban sprawl was soon too powerful for the few remaining farmers to withstand. I can only imagine that my first mountain thoughts must have come from my father and the stories he told me about his hiking days through many an Appalachian trail, his youthful escape from the very same streets he had come from. But still, there were no mountains in sight, not even, as, not even when, as a young girl, the first poem I would commit to memory would begin with, all I could see from where I stood were three long mountains and a wood, the opening line of Renaissance by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Reading that poem today, I'm struck by what a weighty group of words I was attached to with death and rebirth as central to the poem's ultimate embrace of the present. I remember calling on those opening lines when my father drove us along the skyline drive, my first viewing of mountains outside of their pictures, and how those words shaped my seeing and made the experience feel remarkably special. My more mature reading led me to W.S. Merwin's The Mountain, a poem I often return to for the visual reach of its poetics. As there are those who will say it will fall on us, it will fall, and those who say it has already fallen, it has already fallen. Have we not seen it fall in shadow, evening after evening, across everything we can touch? I'm already seduced by the idea of the mountain shadows, and I realize that I've already made work inspired by driving through shadows, not mountain shadows, but late in the day, tall rows of trees and their shadows across narrow roads have sent me back to the studio to reconfigure that sensation. Within those lingering shadows, I felt myself moving through time, conscious of the fleeting moment, and all the while recognizing that I was subjected to the sun setting without watching the sunset. These moments mean everything to me as they stir my sense of presence, the very experience I return to when I think of what someone else could hope for in the space of my work. And then it goes on. Wow, that's like a <laughs> book. I see a book in your future. Oh, that's really, you know, um, Willa Cather, you know, kind of your well, connection I, to I, the I, land. I, and, and, and storying it. You know, I, I wanted it to be a, a, a story. So Oh, it is a story, yeah. for sure. Very cool. So they could have given it to you in writing. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, I went on to talk about where mountains have shown up in passing, and then basically um, how I would, you know, address them more directly again um, with this possibility of, of the fellowship of the grant. Right. Well, you know, mountains and nature have always been in your oeuvre as far as I know your work. Um, in fact, you brought today for us to look at um, your self-portrait. <laughs> Would you like my, to describe your self-portrait? <laughs> your double self-portrait. Well, this is, you know, would you please post this instead of a picture of me portrait <laughs> so, <laughs> to um, say it more directly. Um, and, and it's this, uh, a new image um, I have called um, Blue Jays Looking at Blue. And um, it comes from this recent residency I had at the Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest in Claremont, Kentucky, an amazing place that I spent three weeks at. 
um, a place that is um, devoted to connecting people with nature and has a really strong educational and conservation program and uh, very, uh, they're very conscious of, of the public and engaging the public with nature. And since I think sometime in the 80s, they've also had this artist residency. So I had my own Sears and Roebuck log cabin in the middle of the woods. Seriously? Seriously. It was serious. Yeah, Sears I think it was driven in whole. I think that's what I was told. And, um, and so one of the things I did in the education center, there's um, what I thought was the meeting room. Other things happen in it. There's a beehive. There's all kinds of things going on. Um, but there's a glass wall, and behind the glass wall is some empty space, and behind the empty space are some trees, and in the empty space are a lot of bird feeders. So it's a perfect blind, the room, for photographing birds, which I took advantage of. And somehow they didn't fly into the glass. I don't know if they see us just enough to know not to come, or um, I'm not... I, d I didn't see it from their point of view, so I'm not sure why, but... But wait, um, wait, t just let me see if I understand. You're inside in a room that yeah, has a glass wall, and yeah. the birds are outside. Yeah, they're outside with bird feeders, right, right, and then right. trees where they can wait until the other bird gets out of the way. And so it's a perfect setup to photograph them in a way that looks like they're wild in nature, sitting in the trees, not at the feeder. I've done something like this before with some cardinals. At any rate, I took a bunch of images having no idea how they would grow and develop. And in a way, um, this project is characteristic of a lot of the ways, uh, um, or one way uh, that I work in terms of gathering images just uh, out of sheer attraction, uh, not knowing what they'll become or how they'll wind up. And then that second stage, that other layer that happens in the studio when other things that I can't imagine at the moment I'm gathering the images come to bear on them. And in this case, it was me remembering that I had read an article about a year ago um, about how Ellsworth Kelly, um, an old art friend of mine, in, in quotes, um, someone I've admired, of course, for a long time, um, had his very first thoughts about um, form and color from his youthful days as a birder in New Jersey, which sort of knocked me off my seat, being a bit of a birder myself, and New Jersey being a prime place where I do that. So that resonated incredibly for me. And I decided to actually, um, it's just the same bluebird. He's, I moved him over from another shot to make him you know, look like he's two birds. And um, looking at this piece of blue that I captured from his feathers and also wanted to pick one that I thought was very Kelly-like. This is my little homage to Kelly. And I wound up doing um, a piece called Seeing Red, which is a cardinal's head looking down at a big wad of red, the color red. And then I, I actually, it's amazing how these, you know, one's art history or all this modernist uh, history that we learn along the way and never think about again is, is like locked somewhere in us or in our pocket. And 
Um, <clears throat> I thought I needed a yellow, and I thought if who's afraid of red, yellow, and blue, and red, blue, and yellow, or whatever that order is, and Barnett Newman, and so I zipped a yellow in <laughs> front of a, um, a yellow bird, and, and so, um, you know, I have this little grouping now that makes a nod to Newman as well as to Kelly, none of which, I, you know, was ever in my mind in Kentucky. So, and you know, and that, that, the pleasure of that next step and what happens and how work finally gets constructed is a place that I value very much. That's so interesting. And um, talk a little bit more about the subject matter of nature and birds and what attracts you to them. I mean, they're wild things, they're of the sky, they're poetic in a way. Oh, they're magical. I mean, I, to me, they're sheer magic. And the lightness of them, if you've ever held one, um, they don't weigh anything. <laughs> when have you and held yet, a bird? Have well, you been in they've like been a... uh, the dead birds. You know, I've had um, the experience of holding. Um, actually, I held. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm forgetting that I had parakeets as a kid. Oh. You know, I mean, just like I never think about them anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Did so, you name them? Did they have names? Uh, um, um, can I remember? Well, they I'm probably sh- did have names. I, yeah, and I'm sure yeah. I can't remember. I do remember my brother coming into my bedroom one day, as an older brother will do, opening up the door and saying, your bird's dead, and closing the door. <laughs> At which point we had a, a, what for him was a mock funeral. But we took the bird in a shoebox down to some... Um, open ground not far from my house and put it to rest. So that I remember. What the bird was called, I have no idea. It doesn't even matter. This is long ago. The dramatic story of the brother opening the door to make this announcement, that Uh, is the bird. Right, he knew I'd be traumatized. (laughs) (laughs) But but, I mean, the the nature connection, I think, again, I mentioned my father, and, and he was a huge influence on me and was a hiker all his life. And and also made art and in, in, in a very un, unschooled. Uh, unschooled, unexhibited, except Dick actually, our friend Richard Torchia, put him in a unschooled show here at Moore many years ago. Oh no kidding. Yeah. And but he Did he draw or paint? No, or he, he made wooden wooden things. And um, he once he carved all of his tools in his shop. Wow. I have a whole box of them. I mean, it's a very special collection that I need to find a home for. But back to the the nature connection, um, on Sunday mornings as a young girl, he would wake me and um, and insist I get up early and go hiking with him in Pennypack Park, which I'm sure I was cranky about at the moment. But, of course, you know, it, it was completely instrumental in... Uh, my affection for the landscape and his joy and, and uh, love of, of that kind of presence just seeped into me. So it wasn't that he taught me, it was more example and model. And we're, we, our natures are very similar, speaking of nature, and um, I, I, all that's in me. That was his great gift to me. 
And um, I feel very lucky, you know, for that. And I, I was his company in the family. I think I was the only one who would want to put up with that and want to do that. And, and then, you know, of course, it grew into my life's work. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, it, it really does come from him. So he sounds a little bit like Thoreau, the you know man of nature, making his tools and hiking. Yeah, but on and the walking. other hand, he was a working guy, you know, who worked for an electrical supply company his whole life. And at night, it, he preferred to go down to his shop instead of watch television. So he had a very big inner life, and he was very curious. He just never had any opportunity. You know, he had to leave school during the Depression. I mean, just on and on, every story was his story. You know, went back and got his GED and then had to support his family. And But meanwhile, was, was bent on having these pleasures that belonged to him and that were outside of the opportunities that weren't given to him. So he was very special, but, but again, didn't... I remember as... A, a young woman trying to get him to go to an art class with me, which was folly. You know, he didn't need an art class, but I saw what he was doing, and that was how I understood things at the time. Um, and of course, he said no. <laughs> so, but but it all you know it all worked out, and he made many beautiful things. You have to come someday and see yeah, what I have of definitely. his. Quite quite amazing. Was he a talker? Um, I mean, you're quite a talker. You're a storyteller um, and a writer. I, and I don't know that he was as, mm, particularly a talker. Um, he, he was more, he was very emotional. He, he was very um, present. He, he was open to, he was very curious. And I mean, these are gifts, you know, to, to be curious and open to what's in front of you. And he had his garden, you know, in the backyard and... Um, he, he, you know, he kept up with his nature love. He did that as a young man. He belonged to hiking clubs. They were all over the Appalachians. Mm. Um, I have found some great old pictures. <laughs> Very cool. I, yeah. So, and, you know, he kept it up as he could. And I think my mother pretended to like walking until after they were married. <laughs> so I hear, I heard these stories along the way. And so I was the next one in line. And that's, that's how it went. Oh, boy. <laughs> so you let's switch radically and talk sure. about something different. I love your connection to nature and the story of how it came to you and to be part of you. That's really great. Um, let's talk about when you discovered your, your, your camera or your love of taking pictures. Because I think... You went to art school, yes? Yes. But you also went, you have a degree in English. That was my first formal education at Temple. I have a BA in literature. And then I took some time off for another kind of life. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, um, um, I lived in England for a couple of years. Um, and when I came back, um, I went also as an English major at Temple on the main campus. I spent all my time in uh, what was an art department on, on the main campus. So I, I was already <clears throat> pointed that way, but not officially. 
And <clears throat> um, when, I, when I came back, I, um, I decided to go to art school and take it on. And um, so I got a BFA from what was then Philadelphia College of Art in painting hmm. and an MFA from Tyler in painting. And um, a few years in to having graduated from Tyler, I was teaching at a private alternative school, the Mequon Upper School, sure. which turned into the Krefeld School and lasted for 13 years. An amazing place, an amazing experience. And um, along the way, I was um, sent um, um, a student, an in, like an intern student, to work with me from the University of the Arts. I think it was still Philadelphia College of Art then. And my reward for having her keep me company in class was to have a free, a free class at school. So I took one photography class in the evening with Jack Cornell. I don't know if you know who that is. No. I don't know what's happened to him. I don't know if he's around anymore. Um, and I didn't even think I would like it because I had done something in printmaking and found the process very tedious. So I wasn't sure, but I wanted to mix things up with my painting. And somehow I started photographing pieces of my painting. Before I knew it, I had built a black and white dark room in my bedroom, I used the bathroom water, and I never made another painting. And that I, I didn't expect to go all the way. I always thought, well, I'll make a painting tomorrow, and it just didn't happen. And that was in 1980. So let's talk Just about a color. Long time ago. That is. Let's, let's talk about color then because. Because I painted them at the time. They were black and white. I, I would make model scale little images. I would cut and paste by hand. If the size was wrong, I'd run back in the dark room, use it like a copy machine, and make some part of it bigger. You know, wash it for three seconds so it was completely unarchival and dry it with my hair dryer. I mean, it was so primitive, it was bizarre, <laughs> but it worked. And then I would make these, these collages and have them re-photographed with a large format camera, blown up, mounted, and I would paint them with photo oils. Paint and on top of the yes, photo? Yes, yes, very selectively, not, not like all out, like here and there. And, um, and, and, were they, and were you painting grayscale, or did you put color no, on top of them? No, these were photo oils. These were color. I like, But it was photo oils, so they're translucent, and the photo comes through, and you rub it off. So you're like tinting. They're like tinted images. And this, Do you have any of this work? I do. Um, very little of it, and it's you know very dog-eared, but um, some, something was shown with Bruce Silverstein, and in fact... In 2014, he was interested in somehow presenting the history of my work along with presenting me in a contemporary way. And the way that I solved that problem for him, or the best I could do, um, was I pulled some of these older images out of storage. And the way I had placed them in my studio, I liked seeing them there in that context and reshot them in studio. And those images became what I gave him. Um, so that was, it was like the old embedded in the new. And I think we had one original image that accompanied its placement in another photograph. 
And then we remade <coughs> a really early one that I had done with the Lawrence Oliver Gallery. Larry Mangle had a gallery for a while. This yeah. was in 1990. And it was a sculptural photo object, which were among the first things I, I did somehow. Not coming from photography, I think I felt a lot of freedom with what I might do. I, and oh, it took me sure. a while to actually say I could just take a picture, and that was enough. I mean, I had to get over that because I didn't come from that. So sort of a twisted road, but um, it's worked out a bit. Did you take more photography classes than no. just that first one? So you are kind of self-taught. I am, and then when the computer came along, I resisted it for a long time. Um, uh, you know, friends would say, cut and paste, that's a no-brainer. You should be in the computer. So finally, I, I saw that school was able to help me buy one by taking a small amount out each month, and... I got a student to help me do the things I was already doing, and I slowly learned, instead of from A to Z, like what I wanted to do, what I was doing, how do I do this, and then how do I do that, and then the rest I sort of figured out. I think still I have a very modest relationship with a computer. When you think of all the things you could do with it, I still kind of just cut and paste and clean things up a bit. And certainly the color palette, you know, came along in a new way for better or worse, although you can make things black and white in the computer too. So there, it, it is like a very extensive painting tool. And I think I use it that way. And again, very modestly. So that's, that's my little, that's the story. That's of the history the, of Eileen yeah. Neff. <laughs> well, physically, yes, <laughs> you know, with mat your, materially. With your materials. Yeah. So um, let's talk then about the type since we're in the uh, studio in the thick of things here. What kind of camera do you use for your work? Are you shooting digitally? I, yeah, I have a large Canon uh, digital, um, but 35 millimeter, um, and that's it. You know, but it has very large files and it weighs way too much. But this is what I'm using at the moment, and I think it, I get enough out of it. I think it, you know, I, I get what I can, and it, it serves me at this point. And I'm obviously, you could probably tell, I'm, I'm not the, a good technical source. <laughs> But I, I've learned what I've had to, to do what I want. And, I, and I, so I continue to learn. I mean, in that sense, it's a good thing because when a new pro problem comes up, I need to go somewhere else. And now it's almost online to answer your questions and learn how, yeah. to, do, how to do the next thing. Yeah, you there's can learn video. everything from YouTube. It's incredible, right. So, um, so it's, it's worked. You know, it just works. And whether it could work better and it will in the future, I don't know. But, but I've, I've made it work for where I am. Well, one of the things that I think about when I think about your work, and I've seen it both at Locks um, and at Bridget Mayer Gallery, uh, is that you experiment. Your work does seem to come from a place other than, for want of a, a different term, the history of photography. Oh, that's for it's, sure. it's kind yeah. of parallel track where you're doing installational things. I mean, you printed billboard size. 
things. I remember those enormous, Yeah, I did try things. that once. <laughs> yeah, well, that was experimental yeah. then. And it was also, that was very particular. It was the very sh first show that I did with Lux, and I, it was in response to my always wanting to alter the image, which I had talked about earlier, and to sort of get over it, I took one image, and this was from the train work that I had done traveling between Philadelphia and New York, where I had a place for a little while, and developed this whole project out of the moving train. And I just took one really lovely image and didn't do a thing to it and made it as big as I could, <laughs> almost to say, that's okay. I mean, I sort of did it for myself. And of course, I've, I have other discrete images now that exist as part of what I do. But I also like this layered, um, constructed way of working. And um, that, that just means a lot to me and a way to keep thinking. And it also, it, it takes what happens to me outside in the world, whether I get to travel or I'm just looking out the window or walking down the street and gathering images. And it layers it with the studio time where something else happens. And that seems to mean something to me somehow. So, yeah, I wouldn't say you're a street photographer. No. But possibly your MO with the camera is similar to street photographers who do have their camera uh, on their shoulder all the time and are out there shooting as they go along. So you go to an artist residency and you're taking pictures of the birds through the window, and you're probably going outside and taking pictures everywhere. And my car figures in this too, because I'm not the best walker. Uh -huh. Just my own physical limitations. And there's actually <clears throat> an essay that was written for my um, 2007 exhibition at the ICA called Eileen's Carmara, where Jeremy Sigler, the writer, conflated camera and car because I talked a lot about getting in my car and going out somewhere to see what there was to see. So so I, I do I do go out to collect images. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's street. I think the city interests me a little less than nature seems to be. I, um, it's not that I'm talking about nature per se, but it's my... Um, focus for the content that I want to bring to it. I mean, and in the end, of course, I'm talking about it. But it's not like I have an agenda for nature, but it, it, I, it's a place I like to be. Maybe that's almost a simple way of saying it. And I can think there and, and use it to speak beyond itself. Quite clearly. Um, sometimes when I think of your series of works that you did with the clouds. You had these fanciful clouds that were very anthropomorphic, if I think about them. They seemed to be standing like a human would stand instead of being up in the sky, untouchable. I did, I did do that. I, <laughs> yes, you did do that. So I don't know I, what that problem is called. <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but it just seems there's an absurdity to some of what yeah, you do. Yeah, there is some play, and there is a humor, humorous element. I mean, there was a moment where I thought um, I, that my work didn't express all of me, and I don't know that I intentionally then set out to 
make funnier images, but I think if, if one looks over a range of images, some of them are, they're humorous, they're, and, and some absurd. And I'm very fond of Magritte, and I think he is well locked into my pocket. I agree and, with that. And the reading, I, I mean, I remember as, as a younger artist reading Magritte's writing about art, and he, I always found him so philosophical and so unlike all the other surrealists who I don't like. <laughs> so I always felt him as distinguished from the others and much more uh, of a mind and poetic that a dryness that I could um, identify with. So I, yeah, he's, he's an, another old friend. <laughs> but mostly, you know, I do think about poets rather than visual artists. I mean, I'm naming the ones that I, you know, have unconsciously or consciously collected along the way, but um, I mean, Wallace Stevens is like major for me, and I've been reading him for years, and I'm reading his new biography now, and took it to Kentucky, <laughs> and brought it back. <laughs> Do you write poetry? Um, you know, I did a bit a long time ago, not really. There's one, one um, thing that has happened, and, and it's sort of come back. I mean, I have used text before, here and there in work. I don't know if you remember any examples. Some quoting of myself, some uh, sometimes Wallace Stevens, um, uh, whether framed or white on white on the wall. I had a, a piece um, in the first show I had with Bridget Mayer um, where it, it, we didn't um, light it in a particularly um, high way so that you could easily pass by and not see it. And then if you did see it, you would have to move back and forth, almost like the cloud, to read it all, to catch the light on all the words. So, I mean, that, you know, is another attachment to language coming forward. But in this trip to Kentucky, um, I did run into a little trouble physically. I think I mentioned to you I had some trouble sleeping along the way and so there was a lot as much as I saw and as much work as I was able to do there was a lot I didn't get to see this place is vast so I found myself writing about what I didn't see and I've, I'm thinking that these are texts that could be printed and blown up as small little poetic equivalents of the things not seen so there is, you know, it, it, there is a connection. Definitely. Yeah. Sounds like a book, another book. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for another book. <laughs> Let's get the publisher in here. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Okay. Um, the, the final thing that I want to talk about a little bit, this has been so wonderful to hear about your process and your plans and your connection to nature and poetry. I really love that. Um, talk about being an educator, because you this semester you're teaching, I think, at two places. Is that right? Well, I'm primar primarily at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Academy. Fine Arts, mm -hmm. and I'm um, a resident critic, which means I go and for the graduate program. So I go from studio to studio, and say this, not this. No, I, <laughs> I say a little more. Um, and and that's that's great pleasure and um, and I'm also teaching 
a second year MFA2 seminar called The Studio and Beyond, and there are two other sections that are being taught to other faculty people as well. And basically, it's, it's the, you know, from the studio into the world kind of course. That sounds and very good. It is good. And I also do it in a probably not a typical way. It's less nuts and bolts, uh, which I think there are books for, and I don't want to spend my time showing them how to write a letter, which some need to be shown, but I can, I can point them to where they can find that out. But I like to talk about what it means to be an artist today and um, the nature of studio practice and, and how, what does it mean to have to say yes to a life as an artist? You know, it's not necessarily, probably for sure, that dreamy notion from the past and then what do you do, and how, how do you live it? And it's not something you choose because you think you'll make a lot of money. And it's just, you know, it's such a particular choice. And so I really try to drive home the, the values of it anyway and how one can get behind it and make it, make it a life um, in spite of the fact that the culture doesn't really value it in, a, in the right way. And... And yet, you know, the students are there because even without all the language, they know this. So I, you know, otherwise they couldn't be there and they're paying a lot of money to know this. So I, I feel like my role is to support that. Um, and I'm some kind of a model, I, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't hold myself up as, um, you know, having reached anything except a life that I feel good about and that I've managed to um, keep myself and with the help of galleries and uh, in the studio and so I can do the work that I want to do and um, that's you know hopefully my gift to them and I, I you know maybe not having kids has something to do with it you know so I have all this extra nurturing stuff I don't know what to do with. So they get it, whether they like it or not. And um, it's... It, whether they like it or not. Well... But it, <clears throat> it strikes me that you have the spirit of optimism that um, I do. I, I, I don't know where it comes from, I swear. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I feel... I, I, I still can get excited and, and feel like... Um, there's, you know, the being here is a great wonder, and that's what our work is about, trying to, to speak to that. And um, I, so I, I do, I'm lucky that I love teaching, because it, it does keep, you know, add to the, the little pile that keeps me going. <laughs> you know, I don't know how we can top what you just said. It was so great. So I'm going to say thank you. Thank, thank you, you Eileen. It's been great. Thank you.